morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, November 10th, we're studying Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 25. In today's text, the author of Hebrews brings his sermon to a close with a glorious blessing for the congregation, a blessing from the God of peace through the great good shepherd, Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Pastor Squire, I think you are the closer now <laughs> for the series of Sharper Iron. We had you at the end of Ecclesiastes. You're a Detroit Tigers fan, so you can compare yourself That's to whatever right. they're I don't somebody, know who the famous closer is for the Tigers. Somebody must be on the injured list if I'm serving as the closer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to have you here for the end of Hebrews as you were for the end of Ecclesiastes. Talk to us about the, the book of Hebrews. Anything we need to pay attention to from this, this book, this sermon, as we prepare to close it out today. Yeah, Hebrews is just a wonderful book. And, and I'm sure that some of your listeners have been listening through this whole series and I think my encouragement is uh, similar to, say, the Psalms. Hebrews is a book that, that all Christians should take the time to study, to meditate on, because it's so beautiful, it's, it's dense, it's just a wonderful exposition of how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and how Jesus Christ, his uh, priesthood, his sacrifice for sins, his reigning in heaven at the right hand of God affects us in our daily lives. And there's really no better place in all the New Testament, I think, than, than Hebrews to do, that, to do that, and it's often overlooked. But Hebrews, I think part of the reason why that's true, that it's overlooked, is that it's a little bit of an enigma, especially in that we're not quite sure uh, the audience of this letter or sermon, as you said. And in fact, uh, this isn't really quite exactly in line with how all the other letters in the New Testament are. There, there seems to be a bit of a different genre, uh, and not to mention the fact that the letter itself is anonymous, so we don't know exactly who the author is. It could be Paul. Uh, historically, Hebrews has been attributed to Paul, and in fact, if any of your listeners use the King James Version of the Bible, uh, it will actually say that this is the epistle to the Hebrews uh, from the Apostle Paul. Hmm. But um, but yeah, so between it being anonymous and not knowing who it's written to, etc., uh, oftentimes we, we wonder about this letter a little bit. But what we do know for certain is that uh, the person who wrote this was, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this has been passed down. Even though there's been debate about this letter, uh, we do see this letter as the Word of God. And the person who wrote this letter is very learned, eloquent, uh, steeped in God's word. And as you read through Hebrews, you see very quickly that this letter or sermon or however you want to take it is, uh, especially from the Psalms and from, I think it was 11 books of the Old Testament that the author quotes, 
Uh, this is really a, a sermon in some ways on the whole Old Testament and how Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Uh, what the author says about this writing itself is that it's a brief word of encouragement, which we will see here at the end, uh, similar to what Paul uses in uh, Acts 13 when he's speaking to the assembly of Christians at Pisidian Antioch. Um, but it does seem to have a bit more of an oral character, so there's a lot of repetition, alliteration, and so on that that would imply that this is supposed to be read out loud, and not just like the letters, but but almost as an oral presentation. Uh, people have called this a, a rhetorical masterpiece, and again, I, I commend this letter or sermon or whatever to, to all of your readers because of its beauty and because of its uh, focus on, again, Jesus Christ as our high priest, as our sacrifice, and as our king. So with those themes, some of those things that you just mentioned, there are themes from this letter, sermon, epistle. What what themes in particular are going to show up, especially here in this conclusion as he wraps up? Yeah, it seems like even though this is just six short verses, um, this this benediction, this this ending of this epistle, really seems to tie together just about everything that the author has has written down. So, right at the beginning of Hebrews, you see right away Jesus is listed as divine. He is the Son of God. He is higher than angels, in all of that. And we see here, as uh, at the end of the the letter, that Jesus is described as not only the great Shepherd of the sheep, but you know, he is somebody, somebody to whom belongs all glory and honor. So we have a very high Christology. And when you think that this, this was written down in the first century, you know, let, let no one convince you that this was somehow some later development, that Jesus was just some prophet, and it wasn't until one or two hundred years later that people started worshiping him. Now, Jesus is the divine son of God. All things were created through him. Uh, Etc. So we'll see that uh, Jesus uh, receiving all glory and honor. Um, I think, too, that early on in the letter, especially in chapters 2 to 5, the author of this makes a big deal about God's people finding true rest. And when this benediction gives the grace and the peace of God, that's, of course, where we're going to find true rest. It's in faith and clinging to the word of God that his word does what it says, is that it brings us grace and peace in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think, too, uh, you have, uh, when the saints are listed, you have this idea, again, that Hebrews uh, implies and also says outright any number of times that this, all of this kind of fits together in a life of worship. So when you think about a benediction, of course, for us as Christians, we're going to hear that word particularly in worship. This is the at the end of the service because this is the good word that is sending us forth back into the world uh, with the blessing of God. Yeah. yeah. So with, with this short text, as you said, it's only a few verses that we have. And as I was looking at the way to, to divide this up for the series, you know, like, well, that's a short text. Can we do all that in an hour? And as I looked at it, I was like, yes, I know we can, especially because of verses... 20 and 21, in, in which is this benediction and even some doxological language, that there's just tons of theology there. But yeah. then we also get to talk about verses 22 to 25, 
which sometimes is the like the conclusions of epistles or conclusion of a sermon in this case is the flyover country of the New Testament. So <laughs> you just kind of like, yeah, I know what's there and, and I'm just going to forget about it. But I guess thinking about a text like this, which is something that isn't always going to be the type of text that'll be read in in worship services, what's the importance for us to, to pay attention even at the conclusion of the epistles or the sermon in this case? You're right. This is really important, and it shouldn't be something we just write off as unnecessary or something that we don't have to read, because I think primarily it reminds us that these are real people at real times in history that God is working through. So God works through means. He works through people. The Holy Spirit inspires people to write down, to speak, to preach. So when we have the mention of Timothy, when we have the brothers and sisters in Christ, the saints in Christ, these are real people at real Christian congregations who had some of the same struggles that we do, who worship the same God that we do, and who are brought into the family of God in the same way, which is to say, by the shedding of Christ's blood, who was our high priest. And even now, we are reminded that we have that same salvation and the same promise and the same peace and the same rest and the same blessing that will come in its fullness when Jesus Christ comes again in glory. Hmm. All right, with those things in mind, let's take a look at this text. This is Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. That's our text. It's Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 25. So Pastor Squire, we have this wonderful benediction here in verses 20 and 21. Just a marvelous text. And, and you and I were talking before we started that we're pretty sure this shows up somewhere in one of the rites in the agenda. I, I think I've used it in a in an installation of officers during a worship service, uh, and perhaps even it will sometimes get substituted maybe for the, the ironic benediction. You right. might hear a pastor use it because it is such a wonderful blessing that we've got here. Yeah, absolutely. It is a blessing. It's a benediction. It is a beautiful word coming from God through the writer of, of Hebrews. And, you know, we go back and forth again, you know, is this a letter? Is this a sermon? What is it? But it matches up with a lot of these same sort of writings and encouragements that we see in the rest of the New Testament. And I think we can glean from that whether, you know, for whatever reason somebody is writing something down or speaking, when it comes to a Christian message of encouragement, it's not really complete until we've heard the blessing of God. So you mentioned the Aaronic benediction, which is from Deuteronomy, and that's uh, what most of your listeners will be familiar with from the divine service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. So you have this threefold repetition of God's name, Yahweh, which usually gets translated as the Lord, but this 
giving of who God is and what he has for us. And when this then gets, I don't think updated is the right word, but maybe in a sense fulfilled in the New Testament, uh, the blessings, the benedictions come explicitly with the name of Jesus Christ, you know, who is the full revelation of God the Father in the flesh. Uh, we can't know God apart from Jesus Christ. So it's natural then that we have these same sort of ideas, grace and peace uh, coming certainly from God, but in and through Jesus Christ. Mm. Well, and, and when we think about a benediction, both as we've got it here in Hebrews 13 and as we receive it in the divine service, this isn't just a like a holy wish that the pastor wishes you this good tidings or something like this. This is actually the to use the, the theological language, this is the performative word of God that's actually accomplishing something for you at that moment. It is. This is, it's not a hope in the way that the world uses it. Like, I wish this will happen, or I want this to happen. But when it's coming from God's word, it will happen. Now, it might not look particularly like we might expect, but uh, the grace and peace of God come even when, or maybe especially when, Christians are being persecuted or when they're down or when they need to be lifted up. So as Paul might say, you know, I've learned to be content in any and every situation, whether I have much or little, uh, and, you know, and, and so on. So yeah, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a beautiful word that brings to us exactly what God has in store for us in Christ, which again is that peace which passes understanding. It's that grace won for us in Christ, and it's that fellowship that comes from being in the body of Christ. So as this blessing starts, the author begins by naming him, the God, the one who gives the blessing, as the God of peace. So talk about the significance of calling God the God of peace. Yeah, I think there's any number of things we can take from this I think uh, as you look through the New Testament, you see that Paul uses this any number of times at or near the end of his letter. So you can look at Romans 15 and 16, 2 Corinthians 13, Philippians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5 as some examples of that. And this can refer certainly to who God is in his character. He is a peaceful God. Uh, it can imply a connection, I think, between uh, God's creative work in bringing order out of chaos. And you can see an example of that in, say, 1 Corinthians 14 as well, that, you know, what does God do when he creates? Well, everything's formless void. It's, it's chaos. It's a, a primordial mixture of darkness and light, of water and land, you know, etc. And what does God do? He separates for three days, and then he fills for three days. So God brings order to chaos. He brings peace to that which is is out of order. And what does he call it at the end? Well, it's very good. So this is who God is, and this is also what God does. And we see that, again, fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. So what does the prophet Isaiah, for example, call Jesus in his prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9? Well, he's the Prince of Peace. So we have this intimate connection, of course, between God the Father the God of peace, and God the Son, who is the Prince of Peace. But it's what's interesting here especially is that this is not the first time that this sort of idea has been used in Hebrews. So if you cycle back to Hebrews chapter 7, when the author is still making his argument about 
Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, back in chapter 7, verse 2, he says that, you know, translated Melchizedek means uh, mm. king of peace, right? King of Salem and, and Shalom, you know, Salem, these are from the same root in Hebrew, which means peace. So this God of peace then is revealed in Jesus Christ. And again, what does Jesus bring to us? He doesn't bring disorder. Okay, again, if you go to 1 Corinthians, what Paul is talking about, that everything should be done decently and in order. Well, not because Paul is, you know, OCD or, you know, type A or something like that, but this is just who God is. He's an orderly God. He doesn't bring disorder. He doesn't bring confusion, but he brings peace. And so God's people then naturally reflect who God is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate the verbal connection to the King of Peace, the King of Salem there in, in Hebrews 7. That was like a connection that I hadn't made. As, as I was thinking about the, the peace that comes in the book of Hebrews, my mind went to the, the thought that Jesus is the one who gives us access to God. So rather than being at enmity with God so that I cannot approach him in his holiness— because of who Jesus is, then I can approach God at peace with him confidently, knowing that I go before his throne to receive grace and mercy rather than wrath and condemnation. Absolutely. And you see that different writers in the New Testament approach this idea in different ways. And here in Hebrews especially, it's usually in terms of the sacrificial system. So you have the priests uh, of the Old Testament have to approach God based on um, the, their sacrifice, which happens on a regular basis. First, they have to sacrifice for themselves, and then they can approach God to sacrifice for others. So there is this constant idea about what does it mean to approach God and how can one approach God? And that's done through the blood of the sacrifice as well. The author of Hebrews is clear that the blood of animals cannot take away sins. So how can we approach God if that's true? Well, only through the blood of Christ. So Jesus becomes, again, both the priest and the sacrifice. And so what does that mean for us? Uh, well, I, I, like you mentioned earlier, Pastor Apple, in the verbiage of Paul, you know, he reconciles us to God. We are no longer at enmity with God. We have this ministry of reconciliation, this is 2 Corinthians, right? Um, that we are no longer uh, just in our nature enemies of God. He's actually brought us to himself, cleansed us, and made us a part of his family. So here in the blessing, then, the God of peace, what has he done? He is the one who has brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So in the blessing, the God of peace is known as the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Yeah, this is, there's so much to unpack here. And I think this might sound obvious, but maybe we don't think about it like this, is that we love talking about the cross and we should, but you know, if Jesus is still dead, there's no peace. You know, this is Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, right? You're still in your sins. You're dead. You, you should be most pitied. So God can only be a God of peace if he brings life from death. And he does that in Christ. So I think first and foremost, we recognize that Jesus is not simply the one who has died for our sins, but who has also, and even more, been raised by God from the dead to complete this salvation, this reconciliation, this forgiveness, this bringing about new life from that which was 
dead and full of sin and, and lost and, and in darkness. Mm. I think, too, when you, when you think about this, that we think about God of peace, you know, this can talk about who God is, but we know God not simply by who he is, good, just, holy, all of those sorts of things, but also by what God has done. You know, what, ha- what has God done? He has raised Jesus from the dead. And, and you look, this seems to be the, the fullness of what God has done. So how is God known throughout the Old Testament? Well, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is then the God who brought his people out of Egypt. He is the God who brought his people into the land flowing with milk and honey. He's the God who brought his people back from exile. Well, all of that's good and, and seems to be sort of increasing in... The, the glory of what God can do, but how does God fully reveal himself, and how do we know God today? Well, he's the God who, who raised Jesus from the dead, which is exactly how Peter and Paul, especially throughout the book of Acts, but also in their letters, declare God to both Jews and Gentiles. You know, this is how God has made himself known to us. This is how he has pointed to Jesus as the Christ, that in that he has raised him from the dead. Yeah, I mean, in thinking about the way that in several places the author of Hebrews has, has wanted to show how Jesus is the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament and better than any priest of the Old Testament or any sacrifice of the Old Testament, to point here to God raising Jesus from the dead is just another example of God giving his stamp of approval. Yes, Jesus is the one that you need to pay attention to. Listen to him. Don't go back to the, the old covenant, to the shadows. Stick with the reality, and you know that this is the reality because God raised Jesus from the dead. Absolutely, and this is how this is how God has fulfilled this. And, and I mentioned earlier that the author of Hebrews loves to quote from the Psalms, and some have actually wondered: Is this a sermon on, say, Psalm 110, which is quoted several times? That the Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." He also quotes Psalm 8: You know, you have made him a little lower than angels, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. And well, again, how is this done? Well, when you see the quotations of the Psalms throughout the New Testament, I I would say the majority of the time, it is either explicitly or implicitly referencing Jesus being raised from the dead. This is the way that, like you said, God has marked the Christ. You know, how do you know that Jesus is the one? How do you know that Jesus is trustworthy and true? God raised him from the dead. And if somebody has been raised from the dead, you should probably listen. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Talk just just briefly, at least. Talk a little bit about the this verbiage that God raised Jesus from the dead, which, as as you pointed out, is the way that the New Testament speaks more often. I think. Yeah. Whereas it seems in in our language today, we more often will say Jesus rose from the mm-hmm. dead. Now, that's also scriptural language, so it's, it's fine to say that. But just talk about the significance of that language that God raised Jesus as a—I don't know. What, what does that bring out more, that God raised Jesus, as opposed to Jesus rose? Well, that's, that's a great thing to think about. And like you said, both are biblical. You have in John, for example, Jesus says, uh, I give, give my life up of my own accord, and I have authority to take it back up. Right. So we can't— only say, well, God had to raise Jesus. Well, Jesus is the Son of God, and there is a, a sense in which he has the authority to take it up. But I think there is an important aspect here that we can remember that our God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
these are you know, three persons and one God who do not act independently, right? So I think there's this intimate connection again between Father and Son and Holy Spirit to be sure in that how is Jesus enlivened, not simply with the breath of, you know, this world, but with God's Holy Spirit. So we have God working together as one. And I think to go back again to the Old Testament, that God is fulfilling what he has promised. So what did God say he was going to do? He was going to save his people from death. You go to a place like Isaiah 25, for example, that he's going to swallow up death forever. Well, how does he do that? By raising Jesus from the dead. So I think we have the fullness of God and his power and his promises in this language of God raised Jesus from the dead. Yeah, yeah. And that's just to, you know, again, because it's not the way that we speak as often, I think, but it is a scriptural way of speaking and, and something we should hold on to for precisely the, the reason that you're saying. So that we don't, I mean, for example, fall into Unitarianism or something sure. and start denying the Trinity by any means. And and to hold on to, again, the way that, that God works. I, I like what you said there, too, because sometimes there is maybe a, a tendency to think, oh, God the Father is, is mean and wrathful. And, and so Jesus like had to overcome that or something like that. No, the Father desires our salvation just as the Son, just as the Holy Spirit. And so to, to speak this way, along with the Scriptures, is a reminder that the triune God, or the one true God, loves us, desires our salvation, and, and has, in fact, accomplished that to, to keep us with the language of Hebrews, to give us his true peace. Yes. So any, before, if you got any more thoughts, otherwise we'll go to the break. I think this is probably a good, good place to break. Fantastic. So we will take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Mark Squire this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, November 10th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 25 with Pastor Mark Squire. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, we're working our way through this blessing that the author of Hebrews gives at the close of his sermon. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, and he calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. Talk to us about the significance of this title for our Lord Jesus. This is highly significant in part because this is an explicit way of, again, pointing to Jesus as divine. 
So if you look through the Old Testament, one of the main images that God uses of himself is that of a shepherd. So the places we would normally go for this would be, for example, the one probably everybody knows, Psalm 23, verse 1, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? The Lord is my shepherd. But you have whole chapters like Ezekiel 34, which is another place that many of your listeners will hear in the divine service that God repeats over and over, I, I myself will come and, you know, shepherd my sheep because he sent shepherds and they've turned away from him. They've mistreated the sheep. They've devoured the sheep even. Uh, You have uh, a place too like Isaiah 63. Um, But when Jesus in John 10 says, not only am I am the gate or the door, but I am the good shepherd, well, that, that should be mind-blowing to everyone listening because Jesus is pretty clearly saying, there's something divine about me. You know, I am God in the flesh come to lead you. So we have this, again, this very high Christology that Jesus is the divine son of God. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. So it says something about him, but it also then, of course, actually would say something about us, which is to say, If he's the shepherd of the sheep, well, who are the sheep? Well, we are the sheep. So we follow him. Again, like Jesus says in John 10, we know his voice. We're comforted by his voice. We follow his voice. Uh, We're not going to follow the voice of another. We're going to follow the voice of the one that God has raised from the dead and who even now is leading us to green pastures and beside still waters. Yeah, the the language of of shepherd, I don't think that specific language has been there in the book of Hebrews. But as I was thinking about about this connection to the rest of the letter, the language of sacrifice has. And so my my mind kind of went to to Revelation chapter 7, where you have Jesus as both the shepherd, but also the lamb on the throne. And so he he has provided that once-for-all sacrifice as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he is also this this good shepherd risen from the dead now to to continue to live, to lead us to those springs of living water, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, again, to, to borrow that language from John. Absolutely. And I think this fits in well with this, the beginning of this benediction here, especially the end, you know, as we move into the blood of the covenant, yeah. what you're saying is exactly right, that the shepherd of the sheep is not unwilling to get his hands dirty, but even more to give his life for the sheep. So he comes down, he condescends, he, he makes himself like a sheep. He becomes the lamb of God to give himself for the life of the sheep. And this becomes then the blood of this eternal covenant. So just as he is both high priest and sacrifice, he is also you know, shepherd and the lamb of God. Yeah, that's right. So talk to us more then about this blood of the eternal covenant by which the, the great good shepherd has, has, I mean, talk about that next phrase. Yeah, yeah this is something that, like you said, the, the shepherd language you don't really see throughout Hebrews, but this blood of the covenant is a very important image throughout the, uh, the letter to the Hebrews in that this whole long discussion again about what does it mean for Jesus to be a high priest? Well, you can talk about it in terms of what line he's in. You know, he's in the line of Melchizedek, not, not of the line of Aaron, um, and so on. But, but when you look at the sacrifice and what has to be offered, this old covenant, which 
Yeah, this is pretty striking language in Hebrews that the author says that that this is not this this covenant does not ultimately bring about the forgiveness of our sins and salvation. It, you have thousands of years of history where God's people have this covenant from God that is not going to last. And you wonder why. Well, I, I don't know, but it's all pointing forward to something greater and eternal. So again, the sacrifices don't last. They have to keep happening. The priests don't last. They die and have to be replaced. The blood of animals can't forgive sin. So how is this all resolved? Well, it's resolved in the person of Jesus, who is the great high priest, the one who made a once-for-all sacrifice, and the one whose blood can actually take away sins. So the blood is the blood of Jesus, and the covenant is not the old one, which has passed away, but the eternal one, which is the only and ultimate way that all of God's people are brought to him to be saved. Yeah, and I think that, you know, calling it the eternal covenant here is is important with that language of from going from the old to the new or to the better covenant. Well, well, dear writer of Hebrews, well, will the new one need to be replaced at some point? You know, is, is there a better one yet? And he says, no, here, this is the eternal covenant that God is giving you in Jesus. There's nothing more coming. Here's the fulfillment. Again, the reality, not the, the shadow, but the substance is here. And it's an eternal covenant that you have in this blood of Christ. Absolutely. And I think if I remember correctly, there's twice, at least twice throughout the letter when the author speaks in this way that, you know, there remain, there can be nothing apart from the sacrifice of God's son that, you know, if you are to turn away again, you, you can't be restored apart from Jesus' sacrifice. You'd be trampling on the blood of the son of God, what Hebrews 10, right? Um, so, yeah, this is this is not the shadow, it's the substance, it's not passing, it's it's eternal. And there will be nothing else apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, so that in his blood you have this eternal covenant. So the God of peace, who brought again Jesus from the dead, Jesus being the great shepherd by his blood, giving an eternal covenant, what is he going to do in this blessing? He equips you with everything good that you may do his will. Talk about now what he, what this God of peace who raised Jesus, what's he going to do? Yeah, the equip word can also be translated as perfect or complete or train. So it implies an ongoing work of God, which I think for us then implies further this clinging to God's word in faith. And I'd be remiss if I didn't try to connect this again to what we were just talking about with Zechariah 9, because it's there that you have Zechariah describing God's people as prisoners of hope, Mm. that God is going to release by, guess what, the blood of the covenant. So how does God equip us then to live these lives of hope in not being able to see? And this goes back to Hebrews 11, right? That faith looks to that which cannot yet be seen. Right. It's not it's, again, not the wish of the world. Like, I hope the Tigers win the World Series, which is not a good thing to hope in, I guess, because (laughs) it's never happened since I've been alive. But but it's a it's a sure and certain hope, which is to say I'm looking for something which is coming, but it hasn't come yet. And that's how God equips us. How do we how how can we live in hope for heaven's sake? Well, it's by the blood of the covenant. So. Again, when the author is equipping us, or whoever he's writing to, it's not 
it's not a wish. It's not, it's not a worldly hope. It's a, a sure and certain connection to who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, because God is the author of order. He's the author of all good. He's the author of what is to come, the new creation, which is eternal. Mm. Yeah. So with that talk of new creation, then that I think would connect to that equip you with everything good, just as yeah. he once created all things and it is very good. So in his new creation, it is very good. Absolutely. And in Christ, that new creation is beginning already. So I don't want to make the error of the Corinthians and say, well, the resurrection has already happened because it, it hasn't. It's just happened for Christ. But it's, it's broken into history. This is, we see this already in Jesus' ministry, that what Jesus is calling people to do in repentance is to come into the kingdom which has, been, which has broken into history in him, and we see healing, we see casting out of demons, we see the forgiveness of sins. We see that which is everlasting being brought to us already, even in a, a glimmer, right? So when he goes on to say that you may do his will, well, this is exactly what Jesus would have us pray in the Lord's Prayer. We pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, as one of my professors like to say, there will be a time when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we won't have to pray this anymore, mm. right? So we're looking forward to the new creation, and yet, even as a glimmer, even as a beginning, it's happening now through the equipping that comes by God's word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and so that we might actually live in this and, and start to do it, uh, because it's not... It's not just a, a knowledge. It's, it's a, again, to go to God's word being performative. It's performative in us and for us. Mm, yeah. You know, you mentioned at the beginning that theme of the rest that God has for his people that shows up earlier in this, this sermon. And, and here, you know, like, well, I'm doing something here. But notice the God of peace through Jesus is equipping you. He's the one who's working in us. This is, this is God at work in us so that we do remain at rest even in the midst of that, that work that he's given us to do, that we do begin to do even now. Yeah, I think it, it is helpful for us to think in terms of God equipping us for peace. And this is something I think recently, at least for myself, that I've been working through in my own mind and heart that when you think when you think about what God does for us, where where else are you going to get your peace? Where else are you going to get your rest? It's it's in coming back to the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, and that's why as Lutherans we're so insistent on the gospel. We're gospel people. We're evangelicals in the proper sense, which is to say, there is no other place to live than in the gospel. The freedom the rest that comes in knowing that our sins are forgiven and that God is making us new already. This is Romans 6, right? What's the purpose of baptism? To crucify you with Christ, to bury you with Christ, and to raise you to a new life, which, guess what, is already happening, right? Don't, don't go back to sinning and to, to living in idolatry. You have a new life. Yeah. Now, all of this happens through Jesus Christ. Here we have his name yet again and his title, Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So now the, the benediction becomes, or it includes doxology. Talk to us about this conclusion of the benediction. Again, the high Christology of Hebrews comes through 
beginning, middle, and end. And here, who deserves all glory? It's, it's Jesus Christ. So I'm glad you used that word, too, because I think when most Lutherans hear the word doxology, they probably start singing, praise God, right? That's right. To whom all blessings flow. So what is a doxology? It's this holy word of praise to God. Well, who is God? He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why do we praise God? Not simply because he's the creator, uh, but because he's redeemed us. He's sanctifying us even now. And I love that the authors of these epistles, even in the middle of their letters sometimes, not just at the end, but mm. man, how wonderful it is to praise God. And anytime we hear something like this, it's, we can't help but to break out and praise to Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done. Yeah, that's right. And and then he even utters the amen there, <laughs> right. even though he's not finished. Yes. And and I, I know if we if we were to read this from the from the lectern on a Sunday morning and you said the amen, there would be even a few of the Lutherans that might quietly whisper the amen at that moment, <laughs> even though more is coming. That's right. And then they would look around and think, Oh, he wasn't done. <laughs> Did anyone notice? <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't usually like to to do that. But I think it's what a wonderful word. And this is, this is a, the word in the catechism. This is the scriptural word that when we hear something like this and when we join in something like this, there is no better word because we know that it's a word of faith. It's a word of a certain hope. It will be so, right? Yes, yes, it shall be so. We know that this is true and that God will be faithful to his word. Yeah, that's right. So, so say that amen. Say that boldly amen. Yeah, when you right. say it in, in worship and any time. It is the word of faith, no doubt, no doubt. Now, as we said, the writer's not quite done at this point. Having given this benediction and doxology, then he, he extends some greetings, at, writes in a very personal way here at the end. In verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Help us into that verse. Yeah, so this appeal is what naturally comes after hearing the gospel. So what does the gospel mean for us? Well, uh, that we have something to look forward to and hear. And this would be, you know, evidence, I think, that this is this has been written down and passed on to a certain group of people, right, that you have a certain greeting that's been given but here, this encouragement, this exhortation uh, in calling them brothers or brothers and sisters, right, that they have a relationship. This is a relationship that is not like anything we find in the world. Uh, you know, oh, say hi, to, say hi to so-and-so. You know, I haven't seen him in 20 years. Oh, well, that, I mean, that's well and good. We might say, oh, yeah, I remember that person. But this is, this is an intimate relationship of being in the body of Christ. So... To be called a brother or a sister, well, how does this happen? Well, you become part of a family. You've been adopted. This is baptism language again. So the exhortation, the encouragement comes within the family, right? Who are you? You're a brother and sister in Christ. And so then I encourage you, even if we might scoff a little bit, well, this maybe doesn't seem brief to us, but, you know, relatively speaking, this isn't you know, some long tome or something like that. I mean, this is, it's dense, but it's, it's not all that long. Uh, and yet how, how wonderful and encouraging it is to hear Christ 
be proclaimed as as savior and king. Yeah, yeah. Well, he certainly could have written more. There's there's yeah. a couple of moments where <laughs> yeah. he says time doesn't allow us to keep talking about this. So he he has I think he's he's held up his end of the bargain when he calls this brief. No no doubt. No, but I do I love this verse because I do think you see the the pastoral nature of the of the letter or even as we've been calling it a sermon because this. Mm-hmm. I, I could hear a pastor, I could imagine myself saying this as a pastor, you know, please bear with this, listen listen to what I'm saying, because I, I intend it for your good, for your encouragement. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying this, to use the language you used previously in this chapter, I'm saying this to you as one who is, is trying to keep watch over your souls. So so bear with this, listen, and, and receive it in the spirit in which it's intended. Yeah, it is very pastoral, um, in that, like you said, if we're up in the pulpit, we we might have a different idea for a certain sermon, but ultimately, you know, what is the main purpose of a sermon? It is to bring that Christian encouragement in the gospel because we want people to be at peace and rest, not to be not to have a, a, a sense of worldly security. Oh, well, I'm good. Now I, can, I don't have to worry about anything. But, but the ongoing attention that's paid to who God is in Christ, what he has done for us, and what that means for us and, and how we can move forward. So I think you're right. This is very pastoral. It would fit very well with what we understand a sermon to be. You know, no matter what the text is, you're always going to come back to Christ and you want people to live in that knowledge and in that faith and in that hope. Hmm. Now, as we see at the close of many of the epistles at, in the scriptures, we have a few mentions of, of names, greetings. As you brought up already, Timothy comes up there in verse 23. What what do we learn there about Timothy? Any historical background? And man, you just wish he would have said who he is, his, yeah. his name, and how he's related to Timothy here. And it's so tantalizingly close, but you right. can't necessarily put your finger on it. Yeah, again, I think this, if you're arguing that Paul wrote this down, this would be evidence for that. But certainly Paul is not the only person that Timothy works with. So you could have Luke, for example, has been put forward, we, we, especially with the formal nature of the Greek here. You know, if you read through Luke's gospel in Greek, have a, a, a more difficult time getting through it, especially if you've only been studying Greek for one or two years. You know, John's the place to go where, you know, I know these words, right? <laughs> but uh, Luke has longer sentences, more vocabulary, and, and certainly Hebrews fits into that. So whoever it is, again, we're reminded that these are real people at a real time. I think this is pretty clear evidence that this is written, not simply in the first century, but probably in the middle of the first century, uh, if Paul is killed around the same time as Peter in the early 60s, you know, I don't know how, what the uh, what the tradition is for Timothy, how, how much longer he would have been around, but it wouldn't have been all that much longer. And so, you know, I think this is good evidence that this is probably still around the time that either right around the time Paul uh, is martyred or maybe right after, if this is not Paul writing this down, but regardless, the church works together. This is not some celebrity pastor who is making a name for himself, which there, there's a sort of beauty in having an anonymous letter like this because it's not about him. Yeah. It's, it's about the church, and it's about Christ first and foremost. So Timothy is coming, and there's an encouragement, too, in being 
in the body, right? You have someone coming to you who has perhaps taught you, perhaps helped you to set up the church, uh, and who is going to further encourage you to run this race of faith. Mm, yeah. Now it says that that Timothy has been released. Yeah. Usually we think about Paul being in prison, but it, here this sounds like Timothy was in prison at least at some point. That seems to be what is implied by the language, and we don't have any record of this, particularly in Acts, for example, but uh, it's not hard to imagine that those who were with Paul, who was arrested, uh, would have been arrested at some point as well. You know, Silas, of course, being the most famous one, but if Timothy is accompanying Paul and Paul gets in trouble, well, you know, Timothy could very well have been in prison as well, even after Paul died. Uh, if Timothy would have carried on with this work, there would have been plenty of people, both Jews and Gentiles, that would have been after him to try to further extinguish, in their eyes at least, uh, the faith of Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and again, the, this thought that they want to be together, I mean, that Timothy's been released, he's going to come when when I, the unnamed author, comes, they, they desire to be together as the body of Christ, even as they give this sermon in written form to the congregation that that unity that they share comes through very clearly here in this in this final greeting. There's also then in verse 24 a greeting coming from the author to the congregation to particularly the leaders and the saints and there's also greetings that he sends along from Italy. So yeah. talk to us about this matter of, of greeting here. Yeah, so the greetings would have been uh, just a standard practice with with the letters here. I, I love the language of the saints here. This is another wonderful word to an image when it comes to the body of Christ, somebody that's been made holy, been set apart. These are not simply friends in the worldly sense. These are holy people that share your faith and your salvation. So this image that the author uses would have evoked all of that, again, the intimate connection in Christ. Uh, It's interesting to have Italy mentioned here, Again, if you're thinking that Paul wrote this down, this would have then been probably after Paul's uh, shipwreck and and arrival in Rome. And we do hear at the end of Acts that for several years, Paul was was under, you know, a a certain kind of house arrest, which was very, it was, it was uh, low security, (laughs) right? He was able to sort of come and go. His friends were able to come attend to him. It seemed like the guards trusted him. So, uh, if this is Paul, you know, this would match with that. Uh, if this is after Paul, well, even so, you have a Roman congregation already. I mean, Paul wrote to the Romans. This is the first and, and longest letter, uh, and in, in some ways a, a, the primal letter of, of the New Testament. Uh, but you have a thriving congregation in Italy, and whether this is Rome or not, uh, this would have spread, of course, from Rome to other parts of Italy. So... You have Christians already just in the first few decades throughout the Mediterranean world, and and we see how quickly this gospel spreads, like Jesus said, from Judea into Samaria and Galilee to the ends of the earth. Mm. Yeah. Now the, the letter closes with very simple words in verse 25, grace be with all of you. Mm. We have about three minutes here, Pastor Squire. Those, again, are, are tempting words just to say, yeah, I know what that means. <laughs> Help us to see the fullness of that and help us to close things out for our our text today in these last three minutes. To tie this all up, yeah, grace is important 
in that it's not, as we've been talking about, not a wish, but God's performative word coming to us. And this is where we find that peace, which is given from God. How can we have peace with him? Only through the grace of reconciliation in Christ. So it is, it's easy to overlook. And yet there is no better way to end a letter or a sermon than to be brought back to the grace of God, which is given to us every time we hear God's word. So when we, we tie this all together with the letter, again, the blood of Jesus, which has been shed for us on the cross, has established this eternal covenant through which we have peace and comfort and blessing and salvation. Now, the resurrection of Jesus brings us life and peace, just as Jesus declared to the faithful women near the tomb, to his disciples in the upper room. You know, what does he say to them? Peace be to you. Well, how? Why? Because he's alive. <laughs> because that reconciliation has happened in Christ. So when we think about ourselves as the brothers and sisters together in Christ, we've been brought together by the blood of Christ. And this is something that we see most intimately in the divine service, for example. When we hear a benediction, I, I hope that we and all Christians will not just think, oh, the service is over. <laughs> Finally, I can go have my donut or something like that. But that God is actually giving me something here. You know, he's already given me his word. He's forgiven my sins. He's given me the body and blood of Christ. And now he's giving me grace. Again, God is a God of abundance. And so this, I think, this letter, this sermon is very liturgical in this sense. And what a wonderful way to, to close it with a benediction that, uh, you know, we often again hear the ironic benediction, but when we hear, for example, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we're brought again to the triune God who brings us to himself, who feeds us even now with the body and blood of Christ, and who, by his word, brings us that peace which can, can last us in this race until the last day when Jesus comes again and finally and forever will throw chaos and pain and sin and death into the eternal fire with the devil and all of his minions. And Christ will reign forever and ever in a new and perfect and peaceful creation. Pastor Mark Squire is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. He has been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 25. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I can think of no better way to conclude this series than with the words that the author of Hebrews gives us as a benediction for us still. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. This coming Monday, we will be starting a series on 1 Corinthians. So if you have any questions about that epistle ahead of time, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.